Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, and welcome to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brian Jura, and I'm very pleased to be joined tonight by award-winning columnist from the New York Post, Mike Vaccaro. Mike, thanks for joining us tonight. Good to be with you, Brian. Well, let's get right into it. Uh, You know, the Mets, they started this season thinking uh, that they were going to the playoffs and possibly even to the World Series, and instead they're going to end up with a 90-loss team. Uh, And I want to know, do you think this is a one-year blip? Or do you see this as a situation that's more serious and it's going to take several years to get back into playoff contention? Well, I think a lot of that has to do with how some of the injured players come back. I mean, if you if you can tell me that Michael Conforto will be back for spring training, I'll feel better about things. If you can tell me that, you know, Ewing's assessment is he's going to come back with a body more attuned to 162 games, I'll feel better about that. Same with Noah Syndergaard. We can go on and on. Um, look, I do think that the intention for the Mets is to is to compete for the postseason again next year. I think everybody involved, from you know fans to management, goes into it with eyes wide open, seeing two years in a row where the vaunted pitching staff wasn't so vaunted once he got hurt, and knowing that some of these guys, you know, may be damaged beyond repair. I do think that uh, you know it's it's it's, it's imperative. You, you don't have the own assessments on your team if you're if, if you're if you're rebuilding. He's on your team because he's part of the of go, of the going for it portion of it. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the what the front office does in terms of building this roster back next year. Um, they've had a lot of scary talk about about what they're going to and not going to spend, and that's you know always seems to be part of the the side story with the Mets in the off season. But uh, uh, I don't think this is a situation where they can just blow it up. I don't, unless they plan on getting rid of everybody, including Jacob Degrom and Noah Syndergaard, and starting over. But I think that's a terrible business. I mean. You know, it's one thing to do that in Houston or Kansas City. It's nothing to do that in New York where, you know, right across town you're going to have a, a team building towards something special pretty quickly if they aren't there already. So uh, I, I just have a hard time envisioning the Mets, you know, going in a completely 180 direction and, and starting over again because I think they still believe that they can get productive years out of those pitchers. And, if that, you know, I, I know it sounds like a pie-eyed dream sometimes, but if only those pitchers could stay healthy, it makes you wonder what they could do over the course of six months. Now, you brought up the, the big elephant in the room, and that's the payroll. I believe the opening day payroll this year for the Mets was somewhere around $155 million, which was higher than it was the year before and certainly higher than it was the first few years that Sandy Alderson was in town. And But the trades that they made seemed, uh, this year at the deadline and shortly afterwards seemed to be more about getting rid of payroll than actually getting anything worthwhile in return. Do you think that they'll they'll 
maintain a payroll in the 150 range, or do you see that going up or, or possibly even going down? Put it this way, they better. I mean, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it's true. I, I, I think that I think fans are fed up. Look, I, I think there's going to be a modicum of anger and fury attached to this season because of how it went went down, and that's understandable from a fan standpoint. But I do think that come November and December, those same fans are going to be interested in seeing, you know, if they can get excited about a team next year. And the only way that's going to happen is if the Mets are are, are, are making strides toward expanding, you know, building this roster. And uh, if they don't do that, they're, they're, they're really at a critical point of their history. I mean, it's interesting. It, it, sometimes it's hard to, to, to remember they went to the World Series two years ago, less yes. than two years ago. And, you know, all of the goodwill that was built in that, you know, essentially three- or four-month run and following that up with going to the playoffs last year. So we can even, even just say it's been, it's been, you know, it's been less than a year since the Mets are actually in the playoffs. And, it's, and so much of that goodwill has been frittered away. Uh, and, and to me, needlessly, I don't know why the general manager decided to, to even hint at what they may or may not spend this offseason, knowing that's exactly what Mets fans are going to, 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 to jump on. I mean, it was, a, it was a foolish thing to do. In my, in, in my estimation, it's, it's one of the reasons why Sandy Alderson is one of the more puzzling GMs in any sport in this town, because I do think he's done a good job, but I also think he's done an incredible job in terms of trying to, uh, you know, really kind of antagonize his fans. I, I never understood why he does that. He did it a couple of years ago when he started tweeting, and then he stopped doing that. But uh, it just seemed like an interesting choice. If the Mets are going to forget winning over the town, which is just something that was supposed to be in their grasp a couple of months ago, if they want to win back their own fans, they need to act like a credible big market organization beginning the day after the season ends. And if they don't, they're going to pay some serious consequences, I believe. Well, this is going to be a fascinating offseason because the contracts of both Sandy Elderson and Terry Collins are up. And I want to know, do you think that uh, either or both of these guys are going to be back running things here in 2018? I'd be very surprised if Sandy wasn't back, and I'd be very surprised if Terry Collins was back. I just think that uh, I think that relationship has run its course. I think that the uh, that, that, that the front office – uh, is far more inclined toward the loyalty toward Sandy than toward Terry. Um, uh, you know, you can, we, we can have a whole separate conversation about whether that's the, the right way to go. But uh, Sandy did build a World Series team. He had an incredible run in 2015 where everything he, everything he did after a, a long period of inactivity, which was frustrating to a lot of people, it seemed like every time then he went to decide to do something, it was a winning move, whether it was getting Addison Reed, getting Cespedes, Calling up Conforto, um, all the things that that, that 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 you know, getting Kelly Johnson, uh, getting Uribe. I mean, these are all things that led to them getting to the World Series, and you can't ever take that away from him. Um, despite the fact that uh, you know they, they 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 regressed last year, even though they made the playoffs, and certainly regressed this year. And you can blame a certain amount of that on injuries, but part of a general manager's job is is making sure your team is fail safe to injury, and certainly that wasn't the case with the Mets. As for Terry Collins, I mean, look, he's he's going to be 69 years old next year. He looks incredible for a man of that age, but you know, there, there, there only comes a certain amount of bad baseball a man can handle. I, I think it's unfair when fans load on all their problems about what's happened to the Mets on Terry. I've been always spoken in my columns saying I don't think he's exactly John McGraw or Connie Mack when it comes to you know being a baseball strategist, but I think that one of the things he's shown 
even this year, is that he has never allowed a team to completely get away from him. Uh, it was because of that they were able to come back and make the playoffs the last two years. I mean, honestly, I think it's because of that that they're not on the, on, on the way to 100 losses this year. And you might say, well, what's the big difference between 100 losses and 92 or 93, whatever they'll wind up with? And that's a fair point. But the fact is that <laughs> even as bad as things have gotten this year, he's never lost a team. And that's a real skill. That's definitely a, a, something that he's worked on as, in his managerial tenure here because there's an issue we had in both Houston and California. You know, it, it's amazing when you think about the career arc of Terry Collins because, as you mentioned, he kind of lost the clubhouses in both of his previous managerial stops. And then here he comes to New York, and, and you think that he'd have that same difficulty again. And not only was it not a difficulty, but it's been one of the things that he's been praised about. And it just kind of boggles the mind how that late career transition happened for Collins. Yeah, I, I think part of it is that he had, he, had, he had the right mix of players. You know, David Wright was always on, in his corner. and that's, that, that, that was a, an important ally to have. Curtis Granderson was a real guy who believed in Collins, you know, really brought his message to, to, to the other guys in the clubhouse. Um, you know, it's hard not to like him. He's a very likable man. He's a very smart man. And if you're a player, I think it's hard not to want to play hard for him because he's clearly shown he has your back. I think that's what he's learned. You know, the, 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 the thing ended in Anaheim in such disarray, really a mutiny. Basically, he would have been asked to walk a gangplank if he if – if the uh, you know Anaheim Stadium had been in, had been in the sea, um, and I think he learned a lot from that. You know, he spent a lot of time, you know, outside the dugout as an organizational man for some, for the Dodgers, for the Mets, and I think that really helped him. I think it helped him not only appreciate the job but be better at it. And uh, I've never been happier for anybody than I was for Collins the the day before the World Series in '05 because he was a guy who spent a whole lot of his career riding the bus never, you know, probably a million times thought, what am I doing? And there he was on the eve of the World Series. And, you know, I, I, I feel bad for him that it's probably never going to wind up yielding a ring because he's a guy who put in the kind of time that uh, that, that ought to be rewarded by baseball. But I do think that, look, I mean, I, I can understand fans are entitled to their opinions. Fans are entitled to fire the manager, same as newspaper columnists are, same as podcasters are. Um and, you know, if you don't think that Terry Collins is worthy of coming back, that's certainly a fair opinion. Um, I would love to have him around a couple more years because I just I, I think he's exactly what a team in transition needs. And when I say transition, I mean either in the, however you want to interpret that, depending on which way the mess decide to go. Um, but, you know, it, I, I think that he's also a guy that probably Mets fans are going to appreciate a lot more 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when you realize – you know what he was. I think I think I think Bobby Valentine's enjoyed that kind of secondary popularity. Now it's hard to find a Mets fan now who doesn't swear by Bobby V, and yet it was hard to find a Bobby V fan a lot of times in 1998, 99, 2000. Now, as long as we're talking about Collins, um, maybe you can. Uh, help educate us on something. And, and for those of us who don't have clubhouse access, it's very hard for us to determine how much freedom uh, someone like Terry Collins has. You know, if you followed baseball for a long time, it used to be certain things were definitely in the purview of the manager and certain things were definitely in the general manager. But those lines have really blurred in the last 20 years or so. So do you think that Collins has pretty much had the ability to run the day-to-day club and in the manner that he saw fit, or was he just merely carrying water for Sandy Alderson? 
Look, I don't think he was carrying Sandy's water, but I do think that everything he did was reflective of something that Sandy probably wanted, whether it's who batted leadoff, who batted cleanup, who batted seventh, who batted eighth, whether it was who was in the rotation, whether it was how his relievers were were used. Sandy is not a quiet, stand-in-the-background type of general manager, and he was never going to be that way with Terry Collins. That's why he hired Terry Collins. You know, if, you, you know, if, you, if you're going to hire, a, you know, an impactful, high-profile manager, that guy's probably not going to be, you know, willing to to to, to appreciate your your, uh, your your input. And clearly, Sandy has been a part of this. I don't know that he necessarily writes out the lineup cards. And once the game is on, is on, it's not like he's consulting with Terry on the telephone. So if Terry decides to hit and run the third inning, that's Terry's call. Terry decides to pinch hit in the sixth inning, that's Terry's call. But I do think that everything up until first pitch and everything after last pitch was a team effort. Uh, I'll, is the way I'll put it. Um, I'd still think that, 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 that the manager had most of the say, but in this particular relationship, the general manager had a great deal of say, and probably more than you have in situations like where Joe Madden. I don't think that Theo Epstein is 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 uh, is, is micromanaging Joe Madden at all. Uh, but Joe Madden is a guy who came who you know has a pretty impressive record, and he wouldn't have taken that job if that was if, if those were the conditions attached to it. So. You know, in that, in that sense, I suppose that anybody who wants the Mets job, managing job, you know, caveat emptor, right, buyer beware. You just don't know uh, how much more influence to, uh, that, that Sandy's going to want to have over a new guy. And you got to figure that a guy that he's going to hire is going to be somebody who's receptive to that. And so it's kind of a vicious circle. Yeah, and, and I think that hits the nail on the head. Joe Madden was essentially a free agent available to anybody, and the Cubs had just hired a manager before they got him, but when the opportunity to get a star manager like Madden became available, the Cubs pounced on it. And that's something that I really have a hard time seeing the Mets do. And if, like you said earlier, that uh, you don't expect Collins to return, my fear is that they're going to, to look for somebody exactly in that same type of mode. While it physically won't be Terry Collins in the dugout, it essentially will be just a continuation of what we've seen the past seven years. Yeah, someone like Dickie Scott, someone like Bob Guerin, somebody who's clearly you had a past relationship with Sandy. Um, I, I think that's a very fair way to look at it. Um, uh, if Sandy is the general manager, you know, Sandy's not going to hire Tony La Russa or someone like that. You know, Buck Showalter is probably not going to be the manager of the Mets, even if he's, you know, if he's not managing the, the Orioles. That's just not the way it's going to happen because it's you know, these are guys who, who, who you know, who will, will demand running their own ship and won't appreciate the GM uh, being as involved in the affairs as, 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 as this general manager is. I mean, that's what the Mets are, you know, and, you know, the, the, the fact we've had some success with it, it's hard to dismiss it completely out of hand because clearly, you know, once there was enough talent to compete, they were able to do that in 2015, 2016. Um, only the second time in franchise history, they made the playoffs back to back, which is probably a, a pathetic you know, reflection of the team's history more than anything else. But, you know, it, you, you do have to give credit where credit's due. You know, you can't say that it was completely dysfunctional, the relationship that, that uh, Sandy had with Terry because it yielded results. Probably not as many, probably not as as often as, as fans would like. But, uh, you know, if, if, if put it this way, if Sandy, is, if Sandy is brought back, he's not going to suddenly change the stripes. He's going to be Sandy. And you can take that however you wish, for the better and for the worse. No. And the, the same uh, theory of the blurred lines 
that we were talking about between what's the manager and what's the GM. I think we have that same thing between what's the manager and what's the pitching coach. How much influence do you think that uh, pitching coach Dan Warren has uh, in the the day-to-day operations of the uh, Mets pitchers? A lot. I mean, I do. I mean, and I think that, look, I mean, he, he was a guy that, 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 that wasn't Terry's tire. So, I mean, he's got his own, you know, he's got, he's got his own, you know, kind of kingdom. Um, I don't think Terry pretends to be any kind of pitching guru anyway. So he would probably entrust his pitching coach no matter who the pitching coach was. But uh, Dan Worthen is clearly, you know, he, he's clearly been the loudest voice on that team when it comes to the team's pitchers and not always to the to degree results. I mean, I, I, I don't think you can blame him for the, for the pitchers breaking down physically. But I do think you can you can you can certainly put all of it on him. How when they did you know were healthy enough to pitch this year, especially they were terrible. You know if if you're if you're going to credit the pitching coach in good times, you got to kill him in bad times. And that's I think where Dan Wortham is now. I mean, if there's one guy I'd be very surprised to see back next year, it's him only because he's got a pretty a, a pretty you know wide two year stretch of of underachievement among his pitchers. Uh, that he's got to answer for, and you know it's it's uh, it's it's it, it'll be interesting to see you know when the chronology is if they change managers, if they actually at least go through the, the you know the appearances of hiring the manager first, so at the very least it looks like the manager was on board with whoever they hired to be the pitching coach. It's been a real roller coaster ride with Warden, it seems like. He he came on and he replaced a very controversial figure in Rick Peterson and seemed to be a little bit of a honeymoon period and then it seemed like he got a caught a lot of grief and then all of a sudden it seemed like every pitcher was learning the Warden slider and then having fantastic results. And then now it's like, well, the problem's Dan Warden. Everyone thinks Dan Warden. And it, it, I can't ever recall a pitching coach having that many ups and downs in his tenure with the team. Well, part of it is because this team was predicated on pitching. So you're going to pay extra attention to the pitchers on this team than you would a normal baseball team. You know, I mean, most baseball teams, you know, even even if they have great pitching, I mean, you know, Max Scherzer's as good as it gets, and you have Steven Strasburg on that team. But you think of the Nationals, who do you think of? You think of Bryce Harper, you think of Murph, you think of their offense first, because that's, that's basically, you know, you, you, you're not going to win if you can't score. I don't care how good your pitching staff is. So at some point, you know, when, when you think of a team, you think of their bats. The Yankees, you think of, you certainly you think of Aaron Judge before you think of Luis Severino, I think. You know, you look at the Red Sox, as great as Chris Sale is, I think you look at their, you know, top five hitters who, who are terrific, and then you look at Sale. But with the Mets, it's always been look at the pitching first, because there wasn't much to look at in the lineup, and because it was the pitching around, around which so much of the, the Mets' hopes were, were, were based the last three, four years. And so naturally, the guy is going to get a lot of, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, a, a quarterback coach becomes a guru because his quarterback is Aaron Rodgers or Eli Manning. I mean, you're going to know who that quarterback coach is. And same thing with the Mets. I mean, the Mets are all about pitching for three, four years. So clearly the guy, you, you know, you, you're going to, whose name you're going to know an awful lot about is, is Danny Wortham because he's because he's the pitching coach. Well, that leads me into the next question. And one of the things that I found frustrating as a fan is watching the the what appears to be the pitching game plan where they attack almost every single hitter low and away, low and away, low and away. And sp- someone specifically like Rafael Montero, who for years was getting killed 
because he wasn't allowed to pitch to any other spot besides low and away. And then a month or two ago, they played the Yankees, and all of a sudden he's busting every hitter inside and having success. So my question to you is, who's who's responsible for the game plan? I mean, this is something that I would normally uh, associate with the pitching coach. Is, is that a fair thing to do, or is there more people yeah, involved in that? I think it's definitely a fair thing. Look, I, I think he certainly consults with the manager, consults with the general manager for sure. I mean, nothing happens when you're a pitching coach without at least passing it by those guys, you know, higher above you on the corporate flow chart. But, um, you know, so, so, so clearly that's a, that comes with a stamp of approval. But to me, that, 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 that's an indictment more than anything else on anybody who came in, 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 in contact with this because, I mean, I, I, just, I, just, I just am not one who will ever, you know, believe in micromanaging your talent to that extent. Uh, I just don't think it's right. I don't think it's smart especially in baseball. Baseball is such a reactive counter-reaction game. You know, I mean, is, 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 is anything that, uh, that, uh, that anybody can say to Chris Sale going to make Chris Sale better? I mean, is John Farrell, who was a pitching coach at one time, is he going to be able to unlock the secrets of pitching to a guy who's got 300 strikeouts already? Of course not. You think Terry Francona, you know, is, is, is just telling Corey Kluber how he should, how he should attack hitters? Of course not. I mean, or in his, in his pitching coach, I mean, they may discuss things, and, and certainly their strategies evolve. But the whole notion of trying to piece together a game plan, you know, when you're not the guy throwing the ball, I mean, what makes a pitcher a good pitcher is being able to recognize situations, know when to throw certain pitches, and just, you know, and, and execute those pitches. And, you know, if you're doing that with essentially what's like the old West Coast offense, scripting 15 plays, if you're scripting the first three innings of pitches, that's just – I think it's an idiotic way to do business myself. Now, earlier we were talking about injuries and how they've affected the season, and I think the easiest thing to do with that is to blame Ray Ramirez and Mike Barwis, and certainly people have done that. Uh, during the year, we uh, we heard Alderson talk about how he was revamping how the club handles the communication around the health of their players. And I want to know, is this something on the inside? Have you noticed it, uh, any difference, and, and is it enough? I think they've tried, but it's one of those things where I mean, I mean, you know, sometimes you go to a you go to a restaurant, no matter how many times they change chefs, their roast beef is terrible, but their pasta <laughs> is terrific. You know, it's it's it, it, you know sometimes it's endemic to the to the restaurant. They just for whatever reason can't figure out a certain dish, and I think a lot of that has to you know is is I mean this isn't the first time the Mets have experienced injury. They had a whole season sabotaged. In 2009, because, you know, Jose Reyes went down and Carlos Beltran went down and, and Carlos Delgado went down, and, and you can't win that way. And they made this whole big deal about, you know, recovery and, and smarts and so forth. And they were healthy for a couple of years, but it's, it's you know, it, 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 this has been unprecedented. I don't know who you can blame it on. I mean, I think anybody who says that you blame on the trainer just doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm afraid as a doctor, and, you know, he laughs. He's like, you know, Maybe it is, but I guarantee you don't know the answer to whether it is or not. Uh, it, it's, 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 uh, you know, a, a lot of it is fortune. A lot of it is bad luck. I mean, you know, you can, you can argue about what, you know, what his this looked like when he, when he showed up at, at uh, spring training this, this year. But the fact is that, you know, he, 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 he landed on something wrong and he's, and he, and he blew his hamstring. That's going to happen in the course of playing baseball sometimes. Maybe, you know, the way he showed up and the kind of, you know, his philosophy of big muscles opposed to lean muscles, maybe that made him more susceptible. Who knows? 
you know, it's like pitching. You know, if, if, if anybody can figure out why pitchers get hurt and when they're going to get hurt, step forward because you're going to make yourself a billion dollars. You know, you're going to make a lot of money figuring, figuring out something that no one's been able to figure out, which is how to keep pitchers healthy, how to prevent them to stay away from the Tommy John surgery. Nobody knows. It's all, it, 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 it's all guesswork. I believe that, that, that so much of trying to figure out and diagnose what's wrong with the Mets injury problem is, is, is guesswork because it's, it's, you know, it's, for one thing, they're not the only thing that suffers injuries. They do seem to suffer a lot of odd injuries. You can, if, if you want to break it down, you can, you can blame everything on Barwis and you can blame everything on Ramirez because you can acquire the kind of anecdotal evidence necessary to hand down those indictments. But, um, I think some, I, I do believe sometimes teams are snake bit and I do believe sometimes there's bad luck. You want to call it a black cloud, a black cat that follows them around. I think that was the problem in the Mets the last couple of years, you know? Um, yeah, of course you can do things to try and prevent injuries, but you know, you're not going to tell me that, uh, that, uh, you, you know, the fact that, 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 that Michael Fulmer now is, you know, has to get, uh, has, has to get his elbow checked. Not, you know, not, not the big thing, but has to get the same, Procedure essentially that Jacob Degrom got last year. I mean, how do you prevent that? I mean, are, are, are the Tigers living under the same dark cloud the Mets are? Probably not. It's just athletes get hurt, and um, you know, I, I, I okay. All, all I know is that, that 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 people try and blame the hospital for special surgery sometimes on on what's what, what befalls the Mets. I mean, people come from Sweden and France and you know remote countries and uh, counties in Africa to to, to special, hospital special surgery to get fixed. Uh, I don't think they're, gonna, they're just reserving all their bad karma for the Mets. You know, I, 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 I just don't believe that. You know, it's in the same way, you know, it's, this is a whole different conversation, but it's the same way that so many Mets fans do the woe with me, oh, we're living under a dark cloud, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I have no tolerance for that because, I mean, the Mets, I, I explain to these people, are the beneficiaries of the two greatest baseball miracles of the last hundred years. So you're not going to tell me they're a snake bait franchise when they – you know, can boast both the 69 Miracle Mets and the ball going through Buckner's legs. So, uh, but, you know, no one wants to hear that because, I mean, they'd rather, they'd rather be woe well is me in the same way, I think. Nobody wants to hear that injuries are random. They'd rather be able to have a, to have a straw man, and that, you know, in this case is Ray Ramirez. All right, well, I, I accept injuries as random and not anything that we can do a whole lot about uh, take on it. But let's let's switch over to something that maybe we can – uh, have some control over and and Sandy Alderson he came to to the Mets with a reputation as a guy who liked power and on base percentage and the Mets have a guy now in Brandon Nimmo who's got an on base percentage that's flirting with 400 and yet they bat him in the lower half of the order. What what's the point in having a guy with a 400 on base percentage batting six like he has the entire series against the Marlins? You know yeah. the, the guys who have a 400 on base percentage those are guys who are all stars. And that's bizarre um, so, because because it, and it's just totally bizarre because I mean look it's it, it, especially in these games, you know if you envision Brendan Nemo as being a high on base percentage hitter, in games that matter to nobody to nobody, why wouldn't you why, why wouldn't you see what he's going to be as a, as a leadoff hitter? See if he has something there. Um, you know it, it, I, I was kind of on board, you know even though I, I I thought that it was a terrible, you know misplacement of of, of skill sets to have. Conforto bat leadoff all year. I mean, at the very least, the one thing that they could keep throwing back at you is he's got a very high on base percentage. It was over 400 some of the year, certainly in the 390s most of the year. Uh, clearly, he knew how to get on base. That's you know that's job one of a leadoff hitter. I still think it was absurd to bat him leadoff most of the year. I mean, this is number, it's a classic number three hitter. 
and he should be hitting number three. Every that, 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 that's a, that, that's where he should have been. Especially once the season began to turn south, and it was clear that this was going to be about developing, you know, about, about players. And so I never understood that. You know, I I've never understood, you know, put, putting Reyes second. I mean, if you're if you're not going to have Nimmo number one, have have Reyes number one. I mean, there were some some lineups lately where Reyes was two and Nimmo was five, and and Yoki's a leadoff hitter. I mean, this is a guy. I if unless everything goes wrong, he's not going to be on your team next year. So why in the world are you are, are you wasting time with with with, with batting him leadoff when you have guys? You know, even if you put Ligaris leadoff, I would have no problem with that because you want to try and figure out a way to make Ligaris viable because he's such a great defensive player. I mean, you know, you'd love to figure out a way to be able to use him. You know, and I, and I think, like, for instance, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm with you on Nemo, but I, th- I almost think that you, even if Nemo doesn't play that leadoff this year, I have a feeling that he's going to have that and it will be available to him and to the match that they choose to do it next year. I think Ligaris is a guy that these, that, that these last couple of weeks could have been most useful for in terms of saying, well, let me see if this guy can, can, can understand what it is to be a leadoff hitter in, in these practice games, essentially. Because, I mean, it would be so so valuable to be able to figure out a, a way to, to trust him to be in the lineup every day in a way that I don't think they can now and rightfully don't now, just because his defense is so much. And, and I think that having him out in center field makes, you know, makes every one of the Mets pitchers, you know, a quarter of a run, a quarter of a run better every game they play because they, 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 they feel, you know, if they get the ball in play, that, 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 that the guys behind them are going to catch the ball. Well, we only have about uh, one minute left, so I want to see if we can bang this out real quickly. And the Mets seem to have uh, two holes for next year in the infield, uh, one at second base and one at third base. And I want to know, do you think that Wilmer Flores is going to be the answer at one of those spots? I'd be more inclined to say second base. I'd like to think that the guy who's going to be the the Mets third base next year isn't on the team yet. And I don't mean David Wright. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I I would like to think that that, that, that that's going to be a, a, a position they target to upgrade in the offseason and maybe invest in. Uh, but I do think that Wilmer has to be part of the future only because he kills left-handers so much. And I think that that part of it, I mean, I'm, I'd actually be more inclined to maybe look at a, at a platoon with him and Dominic Smith just because, uh, you know, the first base is a, is, a, is a base where I think Wilmer can do the least amount of defensive damage. <laughs> and also, you know, I, I just think that, uh, that the two of them together in that position could be very productive. I know it's, unusual in 2017 and 2018 to have strict platoons, but I think that would be actually a, a useful way to employ one. Well, we are all out of time. I'd like to thank our guest, Mike Vaccaro from the New York Post for joining us. Mike, it was a, a great half hour, and, and I hope you'll consider coming back on sometime in the future. Definitely. It went by too fast, so we got to do it again soon. Well, thanks so much, and uh, everyone, thanks for listening, and please join us again uh, next week at uh, 11 o'clock Eastern on Wednesday night. Good night, everyone. Goodbye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.